You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. When I was about 12 years old, I carved my initials in some wood, and I was very proud of it until the next day. My parents had given me a uh, Swiss Army pocket knife, uh, and it was quite a treasure to actually possess uh, such equipment. I, uh, we, as far as I knew, were not Swiss, and uh, I was not actually in any army at that time, and I thought it was rather extraordinary that I had a piece of their gear now in my possession. And I, I understood that I was able now to do virtually anything that the Swiss Army could do. <laughs> I, I could pull a cork out of a bottle. I could make a hole in a bit of leather. I could file my nails. Or should I get a splinter? I could pick it out. But then there was this blade that was just crying out to be used. And I found myself at summer camp up on Orcas Island. I was from California. My parents had shipped me off. And, uh, and along this path, there was this um, piece of wood. It was a very crafty camp, and there were a lot of, of carvings, little sculptures. It was a very rich sort of visual and artistic environment. And uh, I just seemed to catch the spirit of the thing and um, took this piece of wood and, and uh, scraped off the flaky red uh, skin on the surface of this a rich, soft, clear canvas, you know, upon which I could, could etch this masterpiece. And I began to, to carve and, and found that the uh, skin was wonderfully soft and I could go deep. And I thought carving in wood would be hard, but this was not. And I, I could go deep and, and, and really uh, notch out these letters so that they could be seen in relief. And I spent a lot of time on them. They were very smooth and and beautiful, and I, I, and I was, I was proud of it. I, you know, it's, you know, it's my name, my initials, but uh, I think in some way I was kind of exercising dominion. I wouldn't have said it that way, but you know, I knew I was destined to rule, and here I was making my mark in life, and and I thought it would be appreciated for having done so, but found out differently the next day. As the next day began, as they all did at summer camp in the uh, stone amphitheater at the. Uh, at the edge of the water, and all the campers gathered, and there was a program. And at the end of the program, the camp director gets up, and he gives his announcement. And the last announcement that he gives is an invitation to everybody to turn around and look way up into the heights of this tree. He says, it's a Pacific Madrona. It's a tree that would grow 75 feet tall. This majestic piece of life was older than any of us here at this camp, which wasn't saying much for most of us. but <laughs> And who knows but that this majestic Madrona would live for another century, except for what happened yesterday. <laughs> and then he ran his hand from the leaves at the top, down the branch, down to the trunk, every eye following, and there... Right there was a festering scar right in the middle of this trunk. And I fell silent and lowered my head. And it was actually a very quiet day for me the rest of that day. I didn't say much of anything, except occasionally to wonder aloud whether 
from time to time. There might be anyone at the camp from a gig harbor or somebody who was a particular fan of General Hospital, you know. But it, it didn't take long before they caught up with the owner of the G and the H. And I found myself with a paintbrush and a black can of slop that I was applying some kind of sealant, I guess, to this wound. And I made this large black... As all the campers are walking by, going from activity to activity, there's GH, exercising a different kind of dominion. (laughs) But I thought for a moment, if I could just have that day over. If I could just find myself again walking down this path with, uh, unfortunately, my hand in my right pocket feeling the smooth casing of this new Swiss army knife. And if I'd only said, you know, I'm just going to keep walking. Guilt. Guilt is that impulse within us that says, I just wish I could go back. Guilt is for sure, it is a hope killer. Last week, we talked about the hope killer of suffering. And this week, as we see the Apostle Paul driving home the case for hope, he will take up this second item that is so prevalent in our lives if we are to be truthful with one another. Someone said, why is it that so many people feel guilty? The truth is, we are guilty. And we feel it. And so the Apostle Paul says, we need to talk about what Jesus Christ says about our guilt. Because you'll never be a person who has hope as long as you have guilt. See, hope is a way of living your life today with an orientation to the future and what you know is coming. But guilt, you see, is a way of living your life today with an orientation to the past tied to what has been and what can never be changed. Guilt is a hope killer. And so now, as the argument of the apostle moves on through Romans chapter 5 into the second half of, of the chapter, he says, let me take you to exhibit B. There is hope because there is forgiveness in life. Let's look at his argument. Would you open up Romans chapter 5? And we won't take the time to read the whole argument here, but I trust you will in your small groups. Let's together stand, if you're able, and read Romans chapter 5, verses 15 down through 17. You'll find that on page 917 of the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 5, verses 15 down through 17. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace 
and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Now we address ourselves to the Lord of the Word and we ask Jesus Christ that you, the one word we must hear in life and in death, would speak to us afresh through the power of your Spirit this morning. Let us hear your word of forgiveness, that in you all things are made new. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as Paul moves to Exhibit B, forgiveness, he stands before the bar and calls into the witness stand before your attention two witnesses, two men, as it happens. The one man, as you just read, through whom sin enters the world, that's Adam. And the other man, through whom there is an abundance of grace, and that is Jesus Christ. Paul calls first Adam to the stand. And Adam comes, and I suppose he takes his seat, and if it's possible, he's sworn in. And we realize this is an interesting conversation on forgiveness. Because to call Adam to the witness stand is to go way back in time. And when we consider actions that we wish we could go back and do over again, we don't typically go that far back in time. I mean, we might go back to the moment when we made the choice. We could make it again. We might go back to the moment before the moment we made the choice and explore our motivations. We might go back before the moment before the moment we made our choice and explore the context and were there any extenuating circumstances? Did anybody do anything to us that caused us to do what we did when we made our choice in the moment? We might even go so far back as to consider the environment in which our nature were formed or the genetic predisposition that influences the sorts of decisions we are naturally inclined to make. But here the Apostle Paul goes further yet still, way back in time. Why? Why, Adam, we would ask the Apostle Paul? I want to suggest to you this, and this is kind of a personal confession. Given Jesus Christ... The greatest obstacle to my experience of forgiveness is not in God's heart, it's in mine. Given Jesus Christ, the greatest obstacle to my own experience of forgiveness is not in God's heart, it's in mine. And what I find in my heart, I also find in Adam's heart. You see, Adam's life is not only about guilt, But it's also about shame. Adam knows what it is like to hide. To hide before the grace of a loving God. Adam, if we read the scriptures, was a man who lived without shame. He had been created by a God who gives him life and in whose presence he lives his life. Just who he is, just who he's made to be. Adam, we're told, is a man who knows what it is to live in relational authenticity, knowing and being known. We read naked and unashamed with his wife Eve. 
Adam, by the way, is simply the Hebrew word, Adam, for humanity. It's the gender-neutral word for, for mankind. And yet, because mankind made its decision and turned against this gracious God, it becomes a humanity without grace, a humanity that knows itself only to be an offender, a humanity steeped in guilt. And when you are guilty and have no grace, the only place to go is into shame. And so I hide. I hide from you. I hide from my neighbors. I hide from my spouse. I hide from my children. I'm afraid that if you saw through my mask, you would see the brokenness inside and the chaos of my life, the guilt for which I have not yet sought grace. You see, what keeps me from being forgiven or knowing myself as forgiven is not so much that I don't believe that there is an abundance of grace. I do, and I suspect many of us also associate the name Jesus Christ with forgiveness. We know that he offers forgiveness, but it doesn't penetrate through the shame. I'm so overwhelmed that I can hardly hear him calling, calling me into his forgiveness. Pierce Brosnan, the guy who, you know, Pierce Brosnan, an actor and plays James Bond and others, he gave a very candid interview a couple of years ago. He says, I know what it's like to loathe oneself. To feel that deep self-loathing. It's painful and ugly and blanking unwanted. And it gets in the way. I can dip in there, into that old black Irish melancholy. You think, am I smart enough? Am I equipped enough to deal with it all? You don't want it to happen, but it's part of life. And when you and I dip into our shame, we act out of it. It plays itself out in the way that we live our lives. This is what the scripture means when it says, death exercised dominion over humanity. Death is the price for sin. And when you have death hanging over your head, you will feel the shame that unforgiven guilt imposes on the vulnerable, rebellious soul. Heard recently of a pastor whose relative got married and she married a man who was an alcoholic, but he never told her that. For five years, he'd been able to suppress that fact. He'd been sober and kept it from her, but on their honeymoon, he began to drink again. And it spiraled. She saw the chaos behind the mask. And she forgave him. It's okay. Wasn't long, though, before that new husband of hers had committed adultery and had an affair with her best friend. And it broke her heart, but she forgave him. And she reconciled with him. She took him back. And again, he continued to act out of his shame. He loved her more than life itself. And yet he continued to drink and to spiral through addiction and finally died at age 38. Liver cirrhosis. Because he understood that there is a price associated with guilt, but what he didn't understand is that he didn't have to pay the price. He didn't have to live in that shame. 
He didn't have to live out of it. Psychologist Carl Menninger said, sin must be dealt with in the private courts of the human heart. And it must be dealt with in the private court of your heart and mine. A few years ago, uh, two years ago, I, I went back to that summer camp. As it turns out, um, both of, two of my kids went to this same summer camp on Orcas Island. And so my wife and I traveled back to pick one of them up at the end of the summer. And you know what I wanted to do? You know what my first thing was? <laughs> you do, don't you? I went straight for that path. I walked right by that amphitheater and I looked to see if the tree had died. And what do you think? It had not died. And I looked for my initials. And you know what? With great relief, I couldn't find them. And I don't know how this works. You know, had, had, the, had the sealant worked? Had they been covered over? Had they gone up? Had they been sloughed off? I, I have no idea. But the scar was gone. But, and I'll tell you this. I am sure there's nobody alive today that remembers that silly little incident. Nobody except for one person. And that's the one person who will never let himself forget the shame he felt at that moment. And that's me. You see, because the scar may be gone on the tree, but the scar is still there on my heart. Forgiveness must be dealt with in the private courts of the human heart. See, given Jesus Christ, the greatest obstacle to my forgiveness is not in God's heart, it's in mine. And yet, the private heart court of the heart is not a sufficient venue to resolve the problem of shame or the problem of guilt. And that is the brilliant thing of this passage. And it is what we dare not miss as we read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. You see, Menager is right, but he's not saying far enough because there's no way in which you and I can resolve the problem of sin in our heart without making appeal to another court, a public court, the court of human history. And this is the court to which the Apostle Paul now appeals as he makes his argument, as he offers Exhibit B, forgiveness. You see, it's not enough just to not feel guilty. I've told you this story before of the man who goes into the bar and he orders a beer and starts to drink the beer and then he throws it in the bartender's face. The bartender goes, what is something wrong with your beer? And he goes, no, it's just I have a problem with authority. And, you know, the way you walked over to me just now, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. He goes, eh, it's, you know, it's okay. Just don't do it again. Next day, of course, he does the same thing. And the bartender, you know, this is enough. You are out of here. You need to get some help. Go see a counselor. Six months later, a man walks back into the bar and he orders a beer. And the bartender, a little bit reluctant, but he says, have you had some help? Yeah, I got some help. Got to solve the problem. You can solve the problem. Pours him the beer. Throws it right in his face. He says, I thought you got some help. He goes, I did. I don't feel guilty about it anymore. <laughs> well, that's, that's a small court. And it's not big enough, the Apostle Paul. So he, he backs way away. He says, I'm not just going to deal with the psychology of guilt and shame. I'm not just going to deal with the atom in you, the way in which you hide. I'm going I'm to address the problem of guilt from the standpoint of human history. And, and to, to do that, he draws out 
this great drama between these two witnesses, Adam, the man, the first man, and Jesus Christ, who, uh, to whom the apostle referred in 1 Corinthians 15 as the second Adam, the second man. The, the, the history of my guilt is a history uh, between these two uh, men. And so here we discover that given Adam, the greatest hope for my forgiveness is not in my decisions, but in God's. And Adam for Paul becomes an analogy for God's decision in Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 14, Adam is a type of the one who was to come, which is to say he is a pattern of the one who would follow Jesus, the antitype. Now, it's odd to hear him say this in verse 14, because if you were to count the words, I suspect you would find the vast majority of the words in this in these three paragraphs are words that Paul will use to show how different Adam and Jesus are, how very different they are. And we won't spend time on this, but you just have to know that he says there's a diff- the nature of their decision is different. For Adam, the nature of his decision is sin. For Jesus, the nature of his decision is grace. The outcome of their decision is totally different. For Adam, the outcome of his decision is condemnation. For Jesus, the outcome of his decision is justification. And the ongoing effect of their decision is totally different. For Adam, the ongoing effect of his decision is the dominion of death, Paul calls it. For Jesus, the, the ongoing effect of his decision is dominion in life. And in fact, there are many similarities between Adam and Christ, most notably their humanity. But the one thing to which Paul calls our attention, the one thing you've got to get here, is that there is a similarity of their decisiveness. The one decision that has such global and wide-ranging implications. I mean, that's the similarity. It's in that sense that Adam, the first, is a type for Adam, Jesus, the second. Both of these two make a decision that has global implications for all of humanity. Of course, Adam's decision is to throw off the worship of God and to try to make himself God and so to admit death for the first time into creation. Jesus' decision to submit to the will of the Father and to take on human flesh and being, and so to offer himself as penalty for the sins of the world. The word, you know, let me just back up for a second. I want to give Andy some credit here for a little illustration. Now, there's a lot of uh, discussion about original sin in the history of theology, and you're familiar with some of that. And I I, I won't say much about that except the fact that in the, in the Hebrew understanding, they're much less individualistic than we are and much more able to understand that one person can act on behalf of, of many. And there are illustrations of this in the scripture, but Andy called to my attention something that where we actually experience this in our day, and it is, it's called sitting on the bench. Now, I know this position very well, but if you've ever been on a basketball team or on a, on a baseball team or... Uh, soccer team, uh, and you might spend the entire game on the bench, but it is the players on the field who affect your destiny. You might say the whole season, as uh, I have done before, on the bench. 
And yet, it is, it is when your team wins, you win. When your team loses, you lose. And in this sense, Adam becomes a representative of all humanity. And his decisive act becomes a legacy for all. So Paul says, be clear if you understand that that is the case for Adam. The same is the case for Jesus, the second Adam. His one decisive act. And the outcome of his decisive act is called justification. Justification. What does that word mean? The Hebrew word is, it really means a vindication. And it's a vindication that's really declarative. It's a, a, a declaration that one is righteous or, or innocent, not guilty. Through the pronouncement of a judge, justification. It's important to know that because a lot of us feel, myself included, sometimes that justification must not have worked in my case because I am still feeling the shame of Adam. Very much a present reality in my life. But justification does not describe what happens inside of its object so much as it describes the relationship of its object to something else. It's about a relationship, and that's so important to get. If, for example, you say to me, George, justify that last statement. What you're not saying to me is, George, change your last statement. You're saying, George, show me the relationship between your last statement and the paragraph in which you gave it. Or if you're, uh, let's say, an accountant and you say to somebody, you're doing an audit, and you say to that person, I want you to justify this number. You don't mean change that number. Make it something other than what it is. What you mean is, show me how that number relates to all the other numbers in the spreadsheet. You see, in, in the same way, when God has made his decision about you, he hasn't changed you by virtue of justifying you. What he's done is he's moved you from one column to the other, from the guilty to the not guilty, from the unrighteous to the righteous, from those under death to those in life who now sit within an abundance of grace. He just makes that decision. Now, mind you, it's not so simple or as easy as simply saying, I forgive you. Because, as I've already said, forgiveness always entails a cost. There's always a price to be paid. And here, Tim Keller has helped me understand this. He says, imagine that you come over to my living room and you happen to blunder into one of my lamps and, and you knock it over and you destroy it. I say, that lamp is a $100 lamp. Now, I might say to you, ah, just forget it, and I forgive you. But but that doesn't mean that there isn't a price to be paid. That $100 lamp is still to be replaced, and it will cost me $100 to do so. When I say I forgive you, I've just said I I will cover the debt. If I don't forgive you, then you expect to get your checkbook out and you'll be writing a check to me for $100 and then you will be paying the price uh, of the lamp. It, what works in economic terms also works in relational terms. When, when let's say, I hurt you and uh, you could say to me, I forgive you. And what you mean by that is I withhold vengeance. If I didn't forgive you, if you didn't forgive me, what you would do is you would try to extract the same level of pain from my life that I extracted from yours when I first hurt you. In other words, there's a a pain debt to be paid. And if you chose not to forgive me, you would extract that debt from me by hurting me. 
On the other hand, if you'd say, I will forgive you, you still must pay that debt. You will endure the pain. You will choose to pay it in your own life rather than extract it from me. And God has done nothing different in Jesus Christ. He said, I forgive you, but he has done so by absorbing the penalty of Adam's sin, of humanity's sin in himself, in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. There he hangs, the scar of humanity on the tree of Calvary. As Paul has put Adam and Jesus on the stand before us, he has made this case. Your past does not define you. You are part of the new creation that God has begun in Jesus Christ. Step back from your shame. Step back from your guilt and see what God has done in the court of human history. Notice one final thing. A difference between Adam and Jesus. Adam, he was uh, subject to what Paul calls the dominion of death. But that dominion is one that you and I have grown rather accustomed to. And we almost, as a matter of fate, assume that people will die. We don't think about it. And it doesn't invite us into much participation. But on the other hand, Jesus has led us into what he calls in verse 17, to exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Which is to say that you are ruling in life. Which is to say that we must actively receive this gift from our Savior and choose to live out of the reality of God's judgment, his righteous judgment that you are now justified, that you are now righteous in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, irrespective of your guilt and shame. Final story. You may remember a few weeks ago I told you about being down in San Diego and I uh, saw some um, Navy SEALs training. And I think it's God's sense of humor that the very next day, Monday morning, I was up quite early and it was still very dark and I was jogging myself. I was running through the Union Bay natural area and uh, I came to a T. And I could hear boots uh, stomping up ahead. And I could barely see through the darkness that there was a long line of people running. And I thought, oh, no. It's the military. It's ROTC. So it's UW ROTC out there. I'd seen them before. But here I had a problem because, see, I'm a little bit too proud to slow my pace down to let them go so that I would fall in behind them. And I'm not quite fast enough at this point to get ahead of them. And so awkwardly what happened was I hit smack dab in the middle of the line. And the guy in front kind of moved forward and the guy behind kind of dropped back. And all of a sudden, I am running with ROTC. I thought about doing ROTC in college, but this was much better. I was running with these guys in the dark, and they're going, hur, 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 and I'm going, hur, hur, hur. and, the, and, and, and their, their, their commanders were kind of annoyed by this thing, and they kept saying, move left, move left, we got a guy here. And I was like, no, you don't need to move. I'm commanded. I was ruling. I was exercising dominion there in that moment. And you could imagine that all of the critical self-talk, my experience of shame, could have been in the woods, hiding behind trees, sniping at me, hoping to pick me off that day. We'd talk like Adams and say, you are nothing. You are a nobody. You deserve worse than you get. And I 
was totally immune because I was with the military. I was running in lockstep. When your shame takes shots at you, speak back. Speak to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Replace the self-talk of Adam with the good news of Jesus Christ. Say to yourself, I am made in the image of God. I have been called into relationship with God. I am an ambassador of the king. I am an heir to the throne. Rule. Have dominion in life. Let's pray. Gracious God, who could imagine so great a salvation? Who could imagine that you would come for us? That you would take upon yourself our debt to offer us your righteousness? And so let us truly live. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to step towards Jesus Christ and into his life through faith, simply acknowledging that your decision about us is the final decision. Thank you for what Earl Palmer, our pastor emeritus, has reminded us that you made your decision both about us and our neighbors before we were born. You made your decision about our need and our belovedness. We are forgiven. And may we be a people who speak to one another in such a way that we do not draw out our shame, that we do not force one another behind masks, but that we know ourselves to be simply the people who are gathered within the availability of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so speak to one another that way. Words of grace, abundant grace, words of life. And may we welcome our neighbors into the same fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.